Section 58 of Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Malachi Orozco. Uncollected Short Stories of L. M. Montgomery by Lucy Maud Montgomery. Una of the Garden. Part 3. Chapter 5. Synopsis of Preceding Chapters Eric Murray, having disagreed with his father about a choice of profession, leaves home and takes a village school for a friend who has fallen ill. Despite the friendship of the people and the care of the couple with whom he boards, the task is becoming irksome, until one evening he strolls into an old-fashioned garden. Here he finds a strangely beautiful girl playing a violin. She flees when she sees him. Eric learns that her name is Una, and that she is a niece of James Marshall, who has an adopted son, Neil, thought to be a gypsy. Una's past is clouded. Her mother, in perfect innocence, has married a man whose wife afterwards appeared. Eric also learns that Una is dumb. Eric pays another visit to the garden and finds Una. She writes that she is not afraid of him. Their intimacy grows, and he brings her books to read, and she plays upon the violin. He discovers that she has never seen herself in a mirror, as all have been turned to the wall in her strange home. He also learns that she has been taught to believe that she is ugly of feature. One evening in late June, when Eric came downstairs, thinking of the garden and the girl who would be waiting for him there, Mrs. Williamson met him in the hall. There was a troubled look on her kindly face, and she spoke hesitatingly. Mr. Murray, perhaps it isn't any of my business, but it isn't because I want to meddle. It's only because I think I ought to speak. Are you going back to the old Connor's garden to meet Una Marshall? For a moment, an angry flush burned Eric's face. Perhaps I am, Mrs. Williamson, he said coldly. What of it? Then, sir, said Mrs. Williamson, I've got to tell you that I don't think you're doing right. I've been suspecting all along that that was where you went in the evenings, but I haven't said anything. Do Una's uncle and aunt know that you are meeting her there? No, I don't suppose they do. But, Mrs. Williamson, you surely don't suspect me of meaning any harm or wrong to Una Marshall. No, I don't, Master. I don't think for a minute you'd do her any willful wrong, but you may do her great harm for all that. She can't know anything about the world or about men, and she may get to think too much of you. That might break her heart, because you couldn't marry a dumb girl like her, and so I don't think you ought to be meeting her in this fashion. It isn't right, Master. Don't go to the garden again. Without a word, Eric turned away and went upstairs to his room. Mrs. Williamson heard him shut his door and went back to her work in the kitchen with a sigh. Her husband came to the door and sat down on the step to enjoy his evening smoke. What's got the master, mother? he asked presently. I hear him striding up and down his room as if he was caged. Sure you didn't lock him in by mistake? Maybe he's worried the way Seth Tracy's acting in school, said Mrs. Williamson, with some of the serpent's wisdom. Shucks, he needn't. Seth'll quiet down as soon as he finds he can't run on the master. He's a rare good teacher, good as Mr. West was. The trustees are hoping he'll stay for another term. They're going to ask him at the school meeting tomorrow and offer him a raise in the supplement. 
Upstairs in his little room under the eaves, Eric Murray was in the grip of the most intense emotion he had ever experienced. Up and down, to and fro, he walked with set lips and clenched hands. Mrs. Williamson's words had torn away the delusive veil with which he had bound his eyes. He was face to face with the knowledge that he loved Una Marshall with a love that comes but once and is for all in all. He knew that he must choose between two alternatives. Either he must never go to the garden again, or he must go as an avowed lover to woo him a wife. Worldly prudence, his inheritance from a long line of thrifty, cool-headed ancestors, was strong in Eric, and he did not yield speedily or easily to the dictates of his passion. Would it not be an unwise marriage from any standpoint? Then something stronger and greater and more vital than wisdom or unwisdom rose up in him and mastered him. Una, beautiful, dumb Una, was, as he had once involuntarily thought, the one maid for him. Nothing should part them. The very thought of never seeing her again was so unbearable that he laughed at himself for having counted it a possible alternative. If I can win Una's love, I will ask her to be my wife, he said, going to his window and looking out to the wooded southwestern hill behind which lay his garden. It was quite dark now, and one great pearl-white star, as clear and beautiful as Una's eyes, was glimmering over it. Her misfortune will only make her dearer to me. It is so strange to think that a month ago I did not know her. It seems to me that she has been a part of my life forever. I wonder if she was grieved because I did not go to the garden tonight, if she waited for me. I wonder if she cares for me. She doesn't know it if she does. It will be my sweet task to teach her what love means, and no man has ever had a lovelier, purer pupil. At the annual school meeting the next afternoon, the trustees asked Eric to take the Stillwater School for the following year. He unhesitatingly consented. That evening he went to Mrs. Williamson as she sat knitting by the kitchen window. Mrs. Williamson, I'm going back to the old garden to see Una again tonight. She looked at him reproachfully. Well, master, I have no more to say, but you know what I think of it. I intend to marry Una Marshall if I can win her, he said. An expression of amazement flashed across her face. She looked scrutinizingly at the firm mouth and steady gray eyes for a moment. Then she said in a troubled voice, Do you think that's wise, master? I suppose Una is pretty and good, but she won't be a suitable wife for you, a girl that can't speak. What will your people say? I've no people except my father. When he sees Una, he will understand. She's all the world to me, Mrs. Williamson. As long as you believe that there's nothing more to be said, was the quiet answer. I'd be a little afraid if I were you, though. My only fear is that she won't care for me, said Eric soberly. Mrs. Williamson surveyed the clean-limbed, well-featured young man shrewdly. I don't think there are many women would say no, master. Well, I wish you well in your wooing. I hope you won't have any trouble with Thomas and Janet. They are so different from other folks there is no knowing. But take my advice, master, and go and see them about it right off. Don't go on meeting Una, unbeknownst to them, and take care of Neil. 
people say he has a notion of Una. He'll do you a bad turn if he can, no doubt. I intend to take your advice, said Eric gravely. I should have done so before. It was merely thoughtlessness on my part. As for Neil, I'm not afraid of him. He couldn't help loving Una. Nobody could. I suppose every young man thinks that about his girl. If he's the right sort of a young man, said Mrs. Williamson with a little sigh. Una was in the garden when he arrived, and he lingered for a moment in the shadow of the spruce wood to gloat on her beauty with delighted eyes. The garden had lately overflowed in waves of old-fashioned caraway, and she was standing in the midst of its sea of bloom with the lace-like blossoms swaying around her in the wind. She wore the simple dress of blue print in which he had first seen her. Silk attire could not have better become her loveliness. She had woven herself a chaplet of half-open white rosebuds and placed it on her dark hair, where the delicate blossoms seemed less wonderful than her face. When Eric stepped through the gap, she ran to meet him with outstretched hands, smiling. He took her hands and looked into her eyes with an expression before which hers for the first time faltered. She looked down, and a beautiful blush stained the virginal curves of her cheek and throat. His heart bounded, for in that blush he recognized the banner of love's vanguard. Are you glad to see me, Una? he asked. She nodded and wrote in a somewhat embarrassed fashion. Yes, I was afraid you would not come. You did not come last night, and I was so sorry. Nothing in the garden seemed nice any longer. I couldn't even play. I tried to, and my violin only cried. I waited till it was dark, and then I went home. I couldn't come last night, Una. I stayed home to learn a new lesson. I'm sorry you missed me. No, I'm glad. Can you understand how a person may be glad and sorry for the same thing? She nodded again. Yes, I couldn't have understand it once, but I can now. Did you learn your new lesson? Yes, very thoroughly. It was a delightful lesson when I once understood it. I must try to teach it to you some day. Come over to the lilac bench, Una. There is something I want to say to you. But first, Will you give me a rose? She ran to the bush, and after careful deliberation, selected a perfect half-open bud and brought it to him. It is as beautiful as, as a woman I know, he said. A wistful look came into her face at his words, and she walked with drooping head across the garden to the bench. Una, he said seriously, I am going to ask you to do something for me. I want you to take me home with you and introduce me to your uncle and aunt. She stared at him as if he had asked her to do something wildly impossible. Understanding from his face that he meant what he said, a look of dismay dawned in her eyes. She shook her head almost violently and seemed to be making a passionate instinctive effort to speak. Then she caught up her pencil and wrote with feverish haste, I cannot, oh, I cannot, do not ask me to. You do not understand. They would be very angry. They do not want to see anyone coming to the house, and they would never let me come here again. Oh, you do not mean it. He pitied her for the pain and bewilderment in her eyes, but he took her soft hands in his and said firmly, Yes, Una, 
I do mean it. It is not quite right for us to be meeting each other here as we have been doing. You are too innocent to understand this, but believe me, it is so. She looked questioningly, piteously into his eyes. What she read there seemed to convince her, for her face turned very pale, and an expression of hopelessness came into it. Releasing her hands, she wrote slowly, If you say it is wrong, I must believe it. I did not know anything so pleasant could be wrong. But if it is wrong, we must not do it any more. Mother told me I must never do anything that was wrong. But I did not know this was wrong. It was not wrong for you, Una. But it was a little wrong for me because I knew better, or rather should have known better. Some day you will understand fully. Now, you will take me to your friends, and after I have talked with them, it will be all right for us to meet here or anywhere. She shook her head. No, she wrote, uncle and aunt would tell you to go away and never come back, and they would never let me come here any more. Since it is not right to meet you, I will not come, but it is no use to think of going to them. I did not tell them about you because I knew that they would forbid me to see you, but I am sorry since it was so wrong. You must take me to them, Una, said Eric firmly. I am sure things will not be as you fear when they hear what I have to say. Uncomforted, she wrote forlornly, I must do it since you insist, but I am sure it will be no use. I cannot take you tonight because they are away, but I will tomorrow night and after that I shall not see you any more. Two great tears brimmed out of her big blue eyes and splashed down on her slate. Her lips quivered like a hurt child's. Impulsively, Eric put his arm about her and drew her head down to his shoulder. As she cried there, softly, miserably, he pressed his lips to the silky black head with its coronal of roses. He did not see two burning black eyes that were looking at him over the old dike with hatred and passion blazing in their depths. Neil Marshall was crouched there with clenched hands watching them. Una, dear, don't cry, said Eric tenderly. You will see me again, I promise you that. I don't think your uncle and aunt will be so unreasonable as you fear, but even if they are, they shall not prevent me from meeting you. Una lifted her head and looked at him wistfully. Oh, you don't know them, she wrote. They will lock me up in my room. That is the way they always punished me. If they do, I'll get you out somehow, said Eric, laughing. She allowed herself to smile, but it was rather a forlorn little effort. She did not cry any more, but her spirits did not come back to her. Eric talked gaily, but she only listened in a pensive, absent way as if not hearing him. When he asked her to play, she shook her head. I can't think of any music tonight, she wrote. I must go home, for my head aches and I am very stupid. Very well, Una. Now, don't worry, little girl. It'll come out all right. Evidently, she did not share his confidence, for her head drooped as they walked across the garden. At the entrance to the wild plum lane she paused and looked half-reproachingly at him, her lips quivering, her eyes filling again. 
she seemed to be bidding him a mute goodbye. With an impulse of tenderness he could not control, Eric put his arm about her and kissed her on the sweet, tremulous mouth. She started back with a little involuntary cry. A burning blush swept over her face, and the next minute she had fled swiftly up the darkening lane. The sweetness of that involuntary kiss clung to Eric's lips as he went homeward, half intoxicating him. He knew that it had opened the gates of womanhood for her. Never again would her eyes meet him with their old, unclouded frankness. When next he looked into them, he would see there she knew the consciousness of his kiss. Behind her in the garden that night, Una had left her childhood. Chapter 6 When Eric betook himself to the garden the next evening, he felt rather nervous. He did not know how the marshals might receive him, and certainly the reports he had heard of them were not encouraging. Even Mrs. Williamson, when he told her where he was going, seemed to look upon him as one bent on bearding a lion in his den. I hope they won't be very uncivil to you, sir, was the best she could say. He expected Una to be in the garden, for he had been delayed by a call from one of the trustees, but she was nowhere to be seen. Impatiently, he walked across to the plum lane, but when he reached the gap, he stopped short in sudden dismay. Neil Marshall had stepped from behind the dike and stood confronting him with blazing eyes and lips that writhed with an emotion so great that at first it prevented him from speaking. With a thrill of dismay, Eric understood what had happened. Neil had discovered them, had probably betrayed them. How unfortunate that it had happened before he had had time to explain. It would probably prejudice Thomas and Janet Marshall still further against him. So far, his thoughts, when Neil's pent-up passion suddenly found vent in wild words. So you've come to meet her, but she isn't here. She will never be here again. I hate you, I hate you, I hate you. His voice rose to a shrill scream. He took a step nearer Eric as if he would attack him. Eric looked him steadily in the eyes with a calm defiance, before which his hot passion broke like foam from a rock. So you've been making trouble for Una, Neil, he said contemptuously. I suppose you've told her uncle and aunt that she has been meeting me here. Well, you saved me the trouble of doing it, that's all. I was going to tell them myself tonight. I don't know what your motive in doing this has been. Was it jealousy, or have you done it out of malice to Una? His contempt quelled Neil more effectually than any display of anger could have done. Never mind why I did it, he muttered sullenly. It is no business of yours. And you have no business to come sneaking around here. Una won't meet you here again. She will meet me in her own home then, said Eric sternly. Neil, you are a very foolish, undisciplined boy to behave as you have done. I'm going straight to Una's uncle now to explain everything. Neil sprang forward in his path. No. No, go away, he implored wildly. Ah, oh, sir, uh, Mr. Murray, please go away. I'll do anything for you if you will. I love Una. I'd give my life for her. I can't have you coming here to steal her from me. If you do, I'll kill you. I wanted to kill you last night when I saw you kiss her. Oh, I saw you. I was watching. I had followed her. 
I suspected something. She was so different, so changed. She seemed to forget that I was there. I knew something had come between us. And it was you. Curse you. He was working himself up into a fury again. The untamed fury of the Italian peasant thwarted in his heart's desire. It overrode all the restraints of his training and environment. Eric, amid all his anger and annoyance, felt a thrill of pity for him. The boy, it was only a boy, was miserable and beside himself. Neil, listen to me, he said quietly. You are talking very foolishly. It is not for you to say who shall be Una's friend. Now you may just as well control yourself and go quietly home. I am not at all frightened by you, and I shall know how to deal with you if you persist in interfering with me. I'm not the sort of person to put up with that, my lad. The restrained power in his tone and look cowed Neil. The latter turned sullenly away and plunged into the shadow of the firs. Eric, considerably ruffled by this unexpected and unpleasant encounter, pursued his way along the lane which wound on by the belt of woodland and twist and curve to the Marshall House. His heart beat as he thought of Una. What might she not be suffering? Doubtless Neil had given an exaggerated and distorted account of what he had seen, and probably her dour relations would be very angry with her, poor child. Anxious to avert their wrath from her as soon as might be, he hurried on, almost forgetting his meeting with Neil. The angry outburst of a jealous boy mattered little, he thought. What did matter was the fact that Una was in trouble which his own thoughtlessness had brought upon her. Presently he found himself before the Marshall House. It was an old, low-eaved, shingled building with sharp gables, stained a dark gray by long exposure to wind and weather. The little yard in front of it was grassy and prim and flowerless. But over the low front door a luxuriant rose vine clambered in a riot of color and blossom which contrasted oddly with the general bareness of its surroundings. It seemed to fling itself over the grim old house as if intent on bombarding it with an alien life and joyousness. Eric knocked at the door, wondering if possibly Una might come to it. But a moment later it was opened by an elderly woman, of rigid lines from the hem of her dark print dress to the crown of her iron-gray hair. Her face was worn and wrinkled, but possessed a certain harsh comeliness of feature which neither age nor wrinkles had destroyed, and her deep-set gray eyes were not devoid of suggested kindliness, although they now looked at Eric with an unconcealed hostility. Eric lifted his hat. Have I the honor of speaking to Miss Marshall, he said. I am Janet Marshall, said the woman stiffly. Then I wish to talk with you and with your brother. Come in. She stepped aside and motioned him to a low brown door opening on the right. I'll call Thomas, she said coldly as she went out through the hall. Eric walked into the parlor and sat down. It was the most old-fashioned room he had ever seen. The solidly made chairs and tables of some wood grown dark and polished with age made even Mrs. Williamson's parlor set of horsehair extravagantly modern by contrast. 
The painted floor was covered with round braided rugs. On the table was a lamp and some theological volumes contemporary with the square-runged furniture. The walls, covered with dark diamond-patterned paper, were hung with faded engravings, mostly of clerical-looking personages in gowns and bands. But over the undecorated mantel, in a ruddy glow of sunset light striking through the window, hung one which caught and held Eric's eye to the exclusion of everything else. It was the enlarged crayon photograph of a young girl, and in spite of its crudeness of execution, it was easily the center of interest in the room. Eric at once guessed that this was Una's mother, for, although quite unlike Una's spirited, sensitive face in general, there was a subtle resemblance about brow and chin. The face was a very handsome one, suggestive of velvety black eyes and vivid coloring, but it was its expression rather than its beauty that fascinated Eric. Never had he seen a countenance expressing more intense and stubborn willpower. Margaret Marshall was dead and buried. The picture was a cheap and inartistic production, yet the vitality in it dominated its surroundings still. What, then, must have been the power of that will in life? Eric realized that this woman could and would have done whatsoever she willed unflinchingly and unrelentingly. She could stamp her personality and her desire on everything and everybody around her. Many things in Una's upbringing and temperament became clear to him. If that woman had told me I was ugly, I should have believed it, he thought. I should never have dreamed of questioning or disputing anything, she said. The strange power in her face is almost uncanny. Pride and stubbornness are its salient characteristics. Well, Una does not resemble her mother in any respect. His reflections were interrupted by the entrance of Janet and Thomas Marshall. The latter had evidently been called from his work. He nodded in silence, and the two sat gravely down before Eric. I have come to see you about your niece, Mr. Marshall, he said abruptly, realizing that there would be small use in beating around the bush with this grim pair. I met your... I met Neil Marshall in the Connor's garden, and I found that he has told you that I have been meeting Una there. He paused. Thomas Marshall nodded again, but did not speak, and never took his steady eyes from the young man's flushed countenance. I fear that you have formed an unfavorable opinion of me on this account, Mr. Marshall, Eric went on, but I hardly think I deserve it. I can explain, if you will allow me. I met your niece accidentally in the garden three weeks ago and heard her play. I thought her music very wonderful, and I fell into the habit of coming to the garden in the evenings to hear it. I had no thought of harming her in any way, Mr. Marshall. I thought of her as a mere child, and a child who was doubly sacred on account of her affliction. But recently, I... I... It occurred to me that I was not behaving quite honorably in encouraging her to meet me thus. Yesterday evening, I asked her to bring me here and introduce me to you and her aunt. We would have come then if you had been home. As you were not, we arranged to come tonight. 
Yes, she told us so, said Thomas Marshall slowly, speaking in a strong, vibrant voice. We did not believe her, but your story agrees with ours. And I begin to think we were too harsh with her. But Neil's tale made us very angry. And we have no reason to be over-trustful in the case of strange men, master. Perhaps you meant no harm. I'm willing to believe it, sir. But there must be no more of it. I hope you will not refuse me the privilege of seeing your niece, said Eric eagerly. I ask you to allow me to visit her here, but I do not ask you to receive me as a friend on my own recommendations only. I will give you references, men of standing in Chelton. If you refer to them, I don't need to do that, said Thomas Marshall quietly. I know more of you than you think, master. I know your father well by reputation. I've seen him. I know you are a rich man's son, whatever your whim in teaching a country school may be. Since you have kept your own counsel about your affairs, I supposed you didn't want your true position generally known. And I held my tongue about you. I know no ill of you, master, since now I believe that you are not beguiling Una to meet you, unknown to her friends of set purpose. But all this doesn't make you a suitable friend for her, sir. The less she sees of you, the better. Eric almost started to his feet, but he swiftly thought that his only hope lay in bringing Thomas Marshall to another way of thinking. He had got on better than he had expected so far. He must not now jeopardize what he had gained by rashness. Why do you think so, Mr. Marshall, he said, regaining his self-control with an effort. Will, plain speaking, is best, master. If you were to come here and see Una often, she'd most likely come to think too much of you. Then, when you went away, she might break her heart, for she is one of those who feel things deeply. She has been happy enough, though I know well that folks condemn us for the way she has been brought up, and we don't want her made unhappy, master. But I love your niece, and I want to marry her if I can win her love, said Eric steadily. He surprised them out of their self-possession for a moment. Both stared and looked at him as if they did not believe their ears. Marry her! Marry Una! exclaimed Thomas Marshall incredulously. You can't mean it, master. Why, she's dumb. Una is dumb. Her dumbness matters nothing to me as far as that goes, although I deeply regret it for her own sake, answered Eric. The older man leaned forward and looked at the floor in a troubled fashion, tapping his calloused fingertips together uneasily. He was plainly puzzled by this unexpected turn of the conversation. What would your father say? he queried finally. I've often heard my father say a man must marry to please himself, said Eric with a smile. If he felt tempted to go back on that opinion, I think the sight of Una would convert him. But, after all, it is what I say matters in this case, isn't it, Mr. Marshall? I am strong and well-educated and not afraid of work. I can make a home for Una in a few years, even if I have to depend entirely on my own resources. Only give me the chance to win her. That is all I ask. I don't think it would do, Master, said Thomas Marshall, shaking his head. 
Of course, I dare say you... you... He tried to say love, but Scotch Reserve balked stubbornly at the terrible word. You think you like Una now? But you are only a lad, and lads' fancies change. Mine will not, broke in Eric vehemently. It is not a fancy. It is the love that comes once in a lifetime and once only. I may be but a lad, Mr. Marshall, but I know that Una is the one woman in the world for me. I'm not speaking rashly nor inconsiderately. I've weighed the matter well and looked at it from all aspects, and it all comes to this. I love Una, and I want what any man who loves a woman truly has the right to, the chance to win her love in return. Well, Thomas Marshall drew a long breath that was almost a sigh. Well, if you feel like that, master. Janet, woman, what shall we say to him? Janet Marshall had hitherto spoken no word. She had sat rigidly upright in one of the old chairs under Margaret Marshall's insistent picture, with her toil-worn hands grasping the carved arms tightly and her eyes fastened on Eric's face. At first their expression had been guarded and hostile, but as the conversation proceeded, they gradually became almost kindly. Now, when her brother appealed to her, she leaned forward and said eagerly, Do you know that there is a stain on Una's birth, master? I know that her mother was the victim of a very sad mistake, Miss Marshall. I admit no stain where there was no conscious wrongdoing. Milton, said Janet almost triumphantly, since neither that nor her dumbness is any drawback in your eyes, I don't see why you shouldn't have your chance. Perhaps your world will say that she is not good enough for you, but she is. She is. This half defiantly. She is a sweet and innocent and true-hearted lassie, Thomas. I say, let the young man have his will. Thomas Marshall stood up as if he considered the responsibility off his shoulders and the interview at an end. Very well, Janet and may God deal with him as he deals with her. Good evening, master. I'll see you again, and you're welcome to come and go as suits you. But I must go to my work now. I'll go up and send Una down, said Janet quietly. She lighted the lamp on the table and left the room. A few minutes later, Una came down. Eric rose and went to meet her eagerly, but she only put out her right hand with a pretty dignity, and while she looked into his face, she did not look into his eyes. You see, I was right, Una, he said. Your uncle and aunt haven't driven me away. She smiled and went over to the table to write on her slate. They were very angry last night and said dreadful things to me. I could hardly believe it when Aunt Janet came up and told me you were here and that I might come down. But I am glad that they have forgiven us. She did not tell him how glad she was, nor how unhappy she had been over the thought that she was never to see him again. Yesterday she would have told it all to him frankly and fully. But for her, yesterday was a lifetime away. A lifetime in which she had come into her heritage of womanly reserve and dignity. The kiss that had passed between them, the words her uncle and aunt had said to her, the tears she had shed for the first time on her sleepless pillow, all conspired to reveal her to herself. She was no longer a child to be made a dear comrade of. She was, though quite unconsciously, 
the woman to be wooed and won, exacting, with sweet innate pride, her dues of allegiance. End of section 58 Recording by Malachi Orozco